Welcome to the Liberation Pedagogy Podcast. This is a place where radical ideas and methods are discussed in the quest towards freedom making. It is a space to dialogue, share, and learn about revolutionary politics, political struggles, radical solidarities, cultural resistance, healing justice, and is a crossing to unearth legacies of resistance pedagogies, global radicalism, and internationalism. I'm your host, Chani Desai, and if you like this episode, please subscribe. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the Liberation Pedagogy Podcast. Our guest today is Chris Ramsroop. Chris Ramsroop is an instructor in the Caribbean Studies program at the University of Toronto. He has a master's in sociology and equity studies from OISE at the University of Toronto. Chris has also been a longtime organizer and migrant justice activist. In particular, he's been involved with Justicia for Migrant Workers, which is a collective committed to organizing with and for migrant farm workers and their families and social movements in their countries of origin. As an autonomous grassroots community group, Justicia sees themselves as part of the radicalization of the existing labor movement and fully supports workers in taking leadership in their own struggle. Thank you, Chris, for being with us today. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. So before beginning today, I would like to just provide listeners uh, with some uh, background on the topic we're going to be discussing today. Global migration has been increasing rapidly over the last decades within and between nation states. In particular, there has been a growth of migrant workers who are non-citizens and thus lack status. Many of these workers are coming as part of formal government programs, especially in areas of domestic workers and seasonal agricultural workers, but also in other areas. They are especially workers of color from the global south. These programs have been expanding rapidly in Canada, particularly during the era of the Stephen Harper government, um, which essentially worked to expand these programs further. These developments sparked demonstrations for migrant rights in many parts of the world, particularly in North America. And in this contemporary moment, with the COVID-19 pandemic, we see the health conditions of migrant laborers being exacerbated by the pandemic, specifically in Canada, but also elsewhere. And this is due to the fact that despite playing an essential role in keeping the supply chains of food production going, these workers remain hungry, many do not have adequate access to health care, Many do not have status, they fear deportation and endure harsh working conditions, and most have been made disposable by the state and companies that have done very little to ensure the health and safety of these workers. So Chris, can you provide some historical context rooted in the post-slavery period to help us understand how Canada developed migrant labor and temporary foreign worker programs um, for us to understand this particular uh, moment that we're in and the crisis migrant workers are, are facing. Uh, so before we begin with the, uh, the, the emergence of the Seasoned Agriculture Worker Program in 1966, I think that the uh, post-slavery period and the emergence of guest worker indentured labor programs are extremely important to understanding uh, what's happening in Canadian society at this particular moment. Uh, so the post-war period, sorry, the post-slavery period uh, in the 1830s saw the rise uh, throughout the British Empire of indentured labor schemes from both uh, South Asia and East Asia. And, uh, you know, derogatorily, they were called coolie labor. And very similar that what we see today is the uh, the implementation and the development of legal codes that uh, based on race, based on immigration status, 
and based on uh, the idea of controlled labor, uh, legally and differentially treated uh, these population of this group of workers different than free residents. And uh, if you compare, uh, do a comparison of the contracts uh, at this indentured period of time versus today, and uh, the contemporary period, you see a lot of similarities uh, with the controlling of labor, uh, the, 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 let's call it a two-tiered or, or apartheid system of, of health care and health care provisions, uh, the perpetual notion of unfree labor, mm. and this um, always yearning and desire to meet a, a perpetual system of labor shortage without really understanding or interrogating what creates this idea of a labor shortage, uh, whether it's the uh, inability to uh, have prov pro pro labor provisions or the actual structure of our um, agricultural industrial complex that leads to this uh, ongoing forms of of, uh, of labor shortages to meet the needs of capital. Mm. So what um, I wanted to just show there that, that this historical context is very important. So that's the first part, um, mm. both of understanding how people migrate and this right. idea of so-called sanitized labor. So you always see these different ideas uh, and the comparison um, that's provided by groups like the International Organization of Migration, where mm. guest worker managed migration programs are seen as a form of sanitized or civil ways of migration or moving from one place to the other in comparison or contrast to undocumented workers. We think of these groups of populations of two, uh, two, two different separate entities, when in many cases it's not the case. Immigration mm. status in many cases are fluid. And I think historically we've, we've seen this. Uh, so that historical component, first of all, is important. Number two, uh, understanding what's been going on in the Caribbean uh, post-slavery uh, and, and the ongoing role of colonialism and how people have been basically uprooted from their land as a result of uh, international pressures, international agricultural pressures, international trade policies. And I think this is also a significant dimension or significant feature of why people are, are migrating to the global north the global north, either as uh, as a so-called immigrant or as, as temporary foreign workers or non-immigrant populations. And then thirdly, uh, the growth of the seasoned agricultural worker and other guest worker programs in the global north is to meet the expanding nature of the agricultural industrial complex. Uh, mm. Not necessarily. I think there is a, 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 a myth, and hopefully later on we can talk about the myth, of um, about uh, addressing food uh, food uh, sovereignty or food security, the the real fact is that the uh, agricultural industrial complex is expanding globally as an empire, and that's the real reason why we're seeing the expansion of guest worker programs. Thanks. Um, so, Chris, can you explain what you mean by the agricultural industrial complex um, and the relationship between um, agricultural work and industry? Uh, many of our listeners will be familiar with the prison industrial complex, the military industrial complex, the NGO industrial complex, but perhaps not um, the agricultural industrial complex. So could you just elaborate on that term? I guess, you know, with all these terminologies, you know, I'm still coming and grappling and struggling to understand uh, in this particular moment what these, what these mean. But for me on a personal level, mm. it's understanding the rise and the growth of, uh, of corporate agriculture uh, a corporate agriculture where they just don't look at uh, the so-called uh, farms mm. itself, but just the entire supply chain and how uh, a few conglomerates, a few corporations uh, basically control the entire system of food production. And that, for me, is where we start as uh, a starting point of understanding the agricultural industrial complex. So we think of 
food, we see this, this secondary myth of the family farm, uh, which really doesn't exist. Uh, a lot of the agricultural production is for, for, gross consum- for mass consumption. Mm. And uh, the other component that we just also seem to not want to talk about is the export-oriented nation, sorry, the export-oriented production. The fact mm. that most of our, our, our uh, in Leeming is a perfect example, but also places like in Simcoe and Niagara, a lot of it is cash crop production, and mm. a lot of it is geared towards uh, export economies, whether it's the United States or overseas. Mm. Uh, the perfect example, uh, and I think the most succinct example that I've seen is, uh, is once again in Windsor, Essex, and uh, the phenomenal growth of the uh, greenhouse industry. So approximately 25, 30 years ago, uh, we saw the introduction of the greenhouse, um, and, and I, correct me if I have a few of my dates wrong, mm. uh, but, but uh, the greenhouse industry, uh, which primarily at that point in time was uh, tomatoes, cucumbers, expanded to all different other forms of commodity crops. Mm. And what we saw over the last couple of years was the legalization of cannabis, a lot of mm-hmm. these greenhouses that were geared towards the export production of tomatoes and uh, fruits, uh, basically, and, uh, and, and vegetables, switched over to uh, cannabis. And uh, we are now, I believe, entering a bust uh, in, in the cannabis uh, production. And what we're now seeing is that these same greenhouses that transformed, converted, or sold to do uh, cannabis production are now going bankrupt as well, too. So once again, that it is where we have a food system that's mm-hmm. premised on profit, uh, mm-hmm. based on the uh, concentration of wealth in the hands of the fewest amount of people, mm-hmm. on a, a in, um, an agricultural industry that's premised on, on a, a legacy, uh, ongoing legacy of colonialism, um, um, based on uh, labor exploitation that's that's uh, a legacy also of slavery and indentureship. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are part of the, the, the components of what I see as the agricultural industrial complex. Uh, on the international component, on the um, domestic component, I would focus on the uh, the strict deregulation of of enforcement standards, labor protections for all workers, but mm. also the expansion of immigration policies geared towards production and the profits of the agricultural industrial complex. Thanks, Chris. Um, that's extremely insightful, especially the way you broke down uh, what this looks like at the international scale and then here at the domestic level. Now, speaking of the domestic, can you also help listeners understand what kind of workers Canada relies on, specifically um, regarding the temporary foreign workers program and also the kinds of industries these workers are employed in um, and which parts of the world these workers are coming from. Um, yeah. So I think the, the way to start off is to return back to the year 1966 when we saw our first uh, government-to-government agreement uh, between Jamaica and Canada uh, for what we call the Season Agricultural Worker Program. The Season Agricultural Worker Program is our long-standing uh, managed migration scheme uh, that started off once again between Jamaica and Canada. It was expanded to uh, the to Trinidad and Barbados, then mm. the Organization of Eastern Caribbean States, and then to Mexico. Workers are tied to one particular employer, and they must return home at the end of their contract. Mm. And what was really important and significant about the emergence of the Season Agricultural Worker Program was that prior to its inception, uh, we had different forms of, of uh, workers or community people that had uh, that had basically tried to address the, the uh, labor shortages. So we had something called the Bernardo children, which were mm-hmm. either orphan children or children from, very, uh, from working class or low-income communities in England that came over to work as child laborers. 
Uh, we had Dutch and, and Polish war veterans who, after World War II, were basically given permanent status and were enabled and permitted to basically set up on the land. Um, and, and, and basically a lot of the farms that you see today are, are some of the same families that came as, as farm workers. Mm. And we saw, I guess, the, 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 the contrast with the racialization and the controlling of labor and the controlling of immigration movement uh, once we started uh, going towards Caribbean labor in the 1960s. And um, Victor Saktovich, uh, he's got a book that he wrote in 1991 called uh, Racism and the Incorporation of Foreign Labor. Mm. And what he basically said in this book was that uh, we saw government officials use this concept and the idea of racialization um, to, to deny these black men, uh, the same rights that they gave to white workers earlier and previously when they um, arrived as, as free labor. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the, the ideas that were used uh, were basically that of nationhood and protecting nationhood. That one, that uh, these men would be a threat to uh, women. Um, mm-hmm. If they, they lived as permanent residents, they would set up families, they would interracially mm-hmm. date. <clears throat> Number two, there'd be a threat to the social safety net by mm-hmm. access to health care, unemployment insurance, and education. Uh, number three, that the, uh, the, the, our idea of the great white north, the nationhood of white people, of white immigrants, of white settlers, uh, would be uh, disrupted if all these black and brown workers would come uh, and, and, and basically try to uh, exert their rights, their civil rights to, to racial justice and economic ju- justice in, mm-hmm. in rural Ontario. Uh, so these ideas are really important to understanding the creation of guest worker programs in Canada and why this group of workers are treated very differently. So for the last 54 years, uh, we have first had workers from Jamaica, then it was expanded over to uh, Mexico. Mm. Uh, in 2018, the three largest source countries of farm workers are Guatemala, Mexico, and Jamaica. Mm. And with the expansion of uh, guest workers into the agricultural industry, not only do we have the seasoned agricultural worker program that enables workers to work in Canada for up to eight months a year, but there's now a low-skilled temporary foreign worker program that, uh, that was developed to complement and to expand the occupations in agriculture where workers can actually work in. And this is where we're seeing workers from Thailand, from the Philippines, from Indonesia, from Honduras, mm-hmm. from Guatemala. And this is the program or the stream that brings in workers from these countries to work on fields across Canada. So, Chris, what happens um, after these workers complete eight months of work or the time they are permitted to work comes to an end um, in Canada? What happens to them, Uh, especially if these workers want to attain status in order to stay? Um, What struggles do they endure in getting status? And particularly given the global political economic context, specifically with um, the spread of neoliberal economic policies that have devastated the regions these migrant workers are coming from or are forced to leave from, uh, what does what is the situation look like um, if they do want to stay and want to attain status? Like, how does that uh, what does that look like? So these programs are non-immigrant programs, meaning that uh, there there is no access to residency. There is no ability, irrespective of how many years uh, a worker is employed in Canada, uh, they have the ability to live here as permanent residents. So it's, it's incumbent on the worker once their contract is done uh, that, they, that they return back home. But even through the process of working as, as a tied indentured uh, guest workers, there's always a consistent idea of the threat of being sent back home uh, for either you know, exerting their basic rights, Mm. Uh, missing curfew, uh, trying to basically uh, be treated as an equal in our society. 
so workers are disciplined under a constant and persistent state uh, system of surveillance and, and employer surveillance uh, that basically rears the workers to simply uh, production of their, their crops and then uh, facilitate a way for them to return back home. So um, now that we are in a global pandemic, what has become clear is the contradiction in these temporary state policies. Um, because on the one hand, you know, movement across borders in this global pandemic has been extremely difficult and in some instances has been barred altogether um, with the closure of borders. Um, And on the other hand, the disruption of supply chains, specifically food imports, has meant that local food production is necessary, um, which in in the context of Canada relies heavily on these workers. So, Chris, can you speak to how the pandemic is affecting migrant workers um, and what might be at stake for them in this specific moment? So I think the pandemic has only heightened the, uh, the, and exasperated the, uh, the precarious conditions that, that we had always you know, raised concerns about. So it was really revealing, um, I guess, the power of the state in March, I believe in March of 2020, when um, Trudeau had gone on television to announce that the borders were closed. Uh, with the exception of essential labor. And as soon as I heard the word essential labor, I knew exactly where they were going to go with this. Right. And, um, and, and, and um, you know, the premise, the, 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 the myth is that when we think about essential workers, we think about well-paid, unionized uh, workers uh, who are working in healthcare or first responders, when in fact uh, the majority of people, uh, particularly during this pandemic, are, are precarious workers. And um, essential labor has always been used as a term to describe agricultural workers, to deny them uh, basic rights to the right to organize, the right to form unions, the right to collective bargaining, uh, the right to uh, their fair share of the pie. Uh, So so I knew exactly what was going to happen. The peeps in whose teeth here, we all knew what was going to go down once this term happened. And then simultaneously, what we saw was the, um, the, the state as well as the agricultural industry uh, deployed all their built, um, all their available resources to to uh, to push for the opening of borders for for mm. guests from from uh, the first uh, Jamaica, then Mexico, then the rest of the Caribbean, mm. and um, and and then we saw this happen, where that uh, thousands of workers from first in Jamaica uh, were told they could come to Canada if they signed a uh, a form that indemnifies their home government of any responsibility if the workers got sick here in Canada. Uh, recently, workers from Trinidad and Tobago. I did the same thing as well, too. And I'll get to that in a second, too, why this is so heartbreaking and why this definitely does keep me up at night. Mm. Uh, And Mexico, uh, Guatemala also uh, uh, permitted their nationals to come to Canada. And um, so thousands of workers came as a result of the, um, about how they were able to craft who could be defined as as essential worker and how they basically opened their borders to particular groups of agricultural workers who were uh, low-wage, tied to the employer, no basic occupational health and safety protections uh, to enable them to come to work in Canada. Prior to their arrival, uh, however, there were thousands and thousands of workers who were already in Canada working uh, predominantly in the greenhouse industry. And we were fearful that uh, those group workers, workers would also be the heightened, not just simply the new arrivals, but the entire uh, industry, the entire workforce would be at a heightened level of, of, of concern. And um, sadly, I guess the first uh, first outbreak uh, that occurred was at a farm in, um, at least the one that we knew in Ontario, was Green Health uh, mm. in Ontario, where approximately 103 workers 
uh, died. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. 103 workers were sick. I think that nobody. Well, the reason why I was thinking about death is that uh, a contract worker who what did work at Green Hill did die. Right. Um, this is where I was going to go with the next point of that. Uh, mm. But 103 workers were very sick uh, mm. as a result of the pandemic there. And um, we saw workers who were telling us that uh, they had uh, tried to complain to their employers that people were sick and that they needed the necessary precautions to be taken place. That didn't happen. We saw the local media basically take a keen interest in what we were saying just simply to debunk us and to try to also debunk the voices of workers. Uh, so, you know, we saw basically the local industry as well as its um, local media apparatus basically try to shut down worker worker resistance and worker organizing. And then we just basically saw from that point onwards, uh, particularly in the Windsor Essex area, a continued uh, onslaught of workers falling sick. Uh, tomorrow, uh, we're going to be uh, naming Muchi, which is one of the large multinationals where there's a large outbreak of workers at that facility. But uh, in the Windsor-Essex area alone, I believe it's close to um, a thousand workers in that particular area who've become sick with uh, uh, the COVID-19. Uh, we've also have uh, two workers in that area that have died. Um, about uh, 200 workers at Scotland Farms in Simple, Ontario. Mm. Uh, about uh, 60 to 70 workers in the Niagara region, and then countless others uh, throughout throughout the area. And uh, not only are, are guest workers getting sick, but contract workers, undocumented workers, Canadian workers, uh, people from different religious communities are all being uh, coming down sick uh, with the virus. And, you know, consistently we're seeing that people have uh, less ability to, to, to uh, proper health care. Uh, we are seeing that people are not having access to uh, unemployment insurance uh, benefits because of the precarious statuses. And housing conditions, right? The fact that people are sharing mm. uh, sharing uh, these these very cramped, c- confined uh, spaces uh, with very little uh, rooms. Uh, we've been exposing as much as we can uh, mm. what's been coming our way to try to highlight some of the conditions that workers are, are facing um, during the pandemic. And all this has been a recipe disaster, as other Houthi activists have, have mentioned, uh, that, you know, all the elements were here prior to the pandemic, but the pandemic's only heightened and exasperated what we, what we, what we knew was going to happen. And uh, we're still, um, and we see this dynamic, which is, you know, Ontario and Canada as a whole is decreasing its, um, its, its, its consciousness and concern about, about the pandemic. But at the same time, we're also seeing a increase amongst the, the farm worker community uh, that the, that is spreading and it's continuing to spread at, at, at drastic amounts. Um, mm. and, and the other component that we're also seeing is that uh, you know the mythology by politicians is that the workers don't want testing. Uh, mm. there's, there's, there's three aspects to this. Uh, one is that the fear of uh, reprisals if workers right. are found to be having of uh, having the virus. Uh, number two is that workers need consent. And you can't just simply force somebody to to uh, to basically uh, take a test. But mm. number three is that workers have been trying to get tested, and they've been told by their employers uh, that it's not the right day, or no, they can't get tested. So it's a, a lot more complicated situation. Um, and and what we're also seeing now is that very few farms are actually participating or or um, ensuring that there is a process where workers can get tested if they so choose to. Wow. Um, This picture that you give us makes it so clear how disposable migrant workers' lives are um, and the lack of utter concern for their well-being and survival. 
um, and especially as death looms um, in this pandemic. Um, So actually, I just wanted to move to speak to migrant worker organizing that is taking place, including the work of Justicia, which has, of course, been ongoing for a long time, but has also um, amped up in a particular kind of way in this particular moment. Um, And so I was just wondering if you can speak to the contemporary organizing efforts that you've been involved with. Um, What are some of the targets and demands that y'all are trying to achieve um, at this time? I think that, you know, as a grassroots activist, um, you know, we pretty much, and uh, I would say I definitely am proud of organizing um, under chaos. Mm. And um, I think a lot of times, you know, we see, uh, campaigning, we see the ability to, uh, of, I guess, of, of many organizations, particularly organizations that engage in, in mainstream um, political actions, are very kind of goals-oriented, um, goals-oriented, disciplined approach uh, of trying to reach uh, certain targets, certain objectives. Uh, this pandemic, there's no way in hell we can do that. Right. And um, groups like Justicia, I think we've been able to, to operate under the crisis. Mm-hmm. And to put demands not just simply at the federal government, but at each level of government, uh, to open up the space to you know to target and look at at, at particular employers, uh, you know those those captains of ag- agricultural industry who have the most uh, power, and to try to try to extract uh, at least the, the most minute protections possible from workers. So I think our targets are multiple, mm-hmm. and uh, the reason why it's multiple is that with a program such as the Season Agricultural Worker Program, it operates. It prospers by the absence of regulations right. and the um, and the multiple uh, jurisdictions that govern the program. So we've got to throw everything we've got. We've got to operate in multiple uh, arenas at the same time. And it's about just putting stuff and being like, we don't care, right? We don't care what you think of our demands are. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't matter how how uh, you know you know, wh- whether it resonates with politicians or not. Um, it's it's a moment of consciousness building. It's a moment for trying to get people to just to re-envision why things are so messed up. Mm-hmm. And that's the approach that we're taking, right? So that's one po- component of it too. And then it's also addressing the immediacy of some of the most um, horrific uh, injustices, uh, you know, where workers are going hungry um, during the quarantine period, uh, mm-hmm. where workers are, are being sick and left alone where workers are being threatened or being told that they've got to work during their quarantine period. So at the same time, trying to address some of these uh, immediate concerns, also trying to think about what our long-term vision is of, of fighting for a just world. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, speaking of raising consciousness in this moment and beyond, um, and I and I say beyond because political struggle is sustained beyond moments um, and is a long-term political project, I have often always, you know, been thinking about how political education is so central to this work that we do. So I'm just hoping if you can speak to the political education work that you're doing, especially given its political significance, um, what are some of the approaches you use when doing political education um, and what have you found to be effective? So it's definitely ongoing and it's messy. Um, so part of it, it's also to, and, and it's like kind of like the, the previous prior to the pandemic organizing too. So right. thinking about you know the demands from the state. Mm. Um, so the demands of the state, right, are just not simply the charity model, right? So whether right. it's getting access to CERB benefits or other forms of state income, but it's trying to use that as a moment to organize and then to talk about you know why are migrant workers excluded for so many different things, right? First and foremost. 
Number two, our, our demands around housing, for instance, it's about trying to show the failure of the local municipalities, but also the, um, the Ministry of Health to address these issues, right. but also how much the industry has, um, has, has influenced both the legislation or lack of legislation and the control that workers, um, the, the accommodations that, that employers have over, over uh, workers' housing. So trying to also kind of unmask um, and, and show the realities of the power forces that, that lead to the, uh, the exploitation of, of migrant workers. And I think that um, you know this is a period of time where where that that it's 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 become quite crystal clear to many people who didn't see this beforehand right. about our um, and the, uh, the 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 um, the the sickness right of the industry itself and how it treats workers. So I think a lot of people become become both within the workers uh, that we organize with, but also in the general community. Um, you know. A greater understanding of the both the you know the political economy of the situation, but mm. also racial dynamics, right? Of why uh, these group of black and brown workers are being denied equal treatment as to other working class community members. Do you also do political education with migrant workers themselves? Uh, for example, like you know rights based training on knowing knowing their rights. Um, or educationals on ways that they can navigate the system despite the various challenges that they face um, or will face? Exactly. Yeah, so that definitely comes, you know, the Know Your Rights information is part of a kind of a larger context. It's always mm-hmm. trying to think about the context of why we provide the information. Uh, so we've done uh, differently, and, and everything's moved online. Um, we're not uh, at this moment going to farms. We can't get mm-hmm. on any farms. Right. So it's about, um, you know, trying to use WhatsApp, Messenger, other means and a lot of the open like so it's also just ensuring too that uh when workers want to speak out we provide a uh, uh, ability to do so so right. one is um and it's the ongoing learning so when the workers at Greenhill wrote those open letters he was mm-hmm. trying to use that as a tool so workers at other farms could think about what they could possibly do when workers are taking videos of their situation to expose what's going on it's trying to build power with not workers only on their farm but other farms to show Look, the condition that you might be facing and that you're feeling alone, that's happening at other places as well, too. Mm. Um, around workers' compensation, it's very similar. Like, what are the, the systemic barriers that, that farm workers, particularly migrant workers, have had to access these type of benefits? So it's been trying to um, use each of these moments to build, build power within the workplace mm. um, as well as the outside support. That's amazing. Um, it's it's and, difficult. Yeah. It's easier to say. Mm-hmm. than what's actually on the ground, right? right. So I don't right. want to come off as somebody who's selling this, this, this you know, grandiose thing that's happening, but it's tough. The, the, the immigration restrictions, the, um, you know, the individuality of these programs, uh, meaning that, you know, workers, um, they're basically, they feel that they are in a, a situation uh, where they can't trust nobody. So making, mm-hmm. you know, just trying to make the, 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 the comrades or the commonalities of other workers, uh, it, it's so difficult, right? But it's a, it's, a, it's a continued process. The racial divisions that happen amongst workers is also extremely difficult. And it's an ongoing process of trying to get workers, even workers from different Caribbean communities to come together to understand. Uh, this is nothing new. Um, right. your, your, your audience may or may not know this, but the employer, this is why they love this program. This is how they basically operate under these type of conditions of division of labor, of, of, of labor segmentation. And this is why, why they love this program so much and love the idea of precarious uh, workers with both immigration and labor uh, precariousness. 
Chris, you're also a teacher, and in the classroom you teach about these issues, um, specifically food sovereignty. So would you be able to share some of your teaching approaches and how you raise the consciousness of your students and some of the ways that you get them to connect what they read in relation to the material reality uh, of the workers' lives that you work with? Um, And are they ways that you essentially engage them in action? Um, Can you speak to this? Well, um, I, I want to try, right? And okay. I think it's good from all of all of you comrades, right? Mm. You know, I, I, I'm trying, mm. uh, trying to learn. And I think it's about, you know, the experiences that, you know, um, whether it's on the farms and trying to have some of the farm workers come to speak to workers or former farm workers to speak about these conditions mm. uh, that are going on. Um, basically using food, food too, as, as an organizing tool. Mm. Um, trying to get us to unpack, you know, the food production. So uh, we might have a movie at the same time uh, feeding people, right? Um, right. Also trying to have the class as a community space. Uh, many years ago when I was a troublemaker at UP, uh, we had this vision of the university as a space of not just uh, for students but community people. So we ran a free university for a couple of years. And the idea of the free university was to take space and mm. to have members of the community uh, basically engage uh, with students. So I've tried to, um, on, on, under as many cases and as many opportunities as possible, open up my class, uh, provide food, have uh, community student exchanges. Um, mm. I've uh, this year had a panel conversation about looking at race and food injustice. Mm. Um, I've had panel conversations talking about migration labor. Um, I've brought in guest speakers uh, from from the faculty of law and other faculties to speak about uh, the connection of legal structures uh, to food sovereignty, to food security, and colonialism. So it's about just trying to make the classroom experience. Oh, and finally, last year, um, mm. I guess before, I guess, you know, the current circumstances, I had brought uh, my students on a field trip to Black Creek Community Farm. Right. So it's about seeing the diaspora, the Caribbean diaspora, uh, the, the racialized communities in the city to look at about the food injustices, food production, uh, the, the, this corporate uh, agricultural power structure, and then trying to link it to colonialism and slavery. Uh, which are important to understand, I guess, as the foundations of the Caribbean. So trying to link both the local to, to what's happening, I guess, back home for many of our families mm. uh, in the, the attempt. And not just about me uh, coming in and yapping, but trying to make the class a, a living space, uh, a, a, a living, breathing space, right, where we're learning from each other. Well, it's powerful. The work you do is powerful. I see it. I witness it all the time. So I just, you know, uh, thought, hey, why not uh, ask, ask you that question? Um, uh, so others can, can see the kind of work you're doing and, and also, um, you know, think about their own pedagogy uh, around uh, these kinds of issues. Um, and I guess you also brought up something else for me. So, uh, you know, I'll be straight up. I've never been the, uh, the best student, right, as mm-hmm. a, a mm-hmm. high school or undergrad student. And I think the, uh, the, the, the implications, uh, I guess, have been longstanding for myself, even though as I do pr- pursue graduate uh, work. And I remember the insecurity that I had felt um, about people uh, thinking that, you know, I was a, a knowledge producer, right? Even mm. though that all this organizing. So I think for myself, you know, irrespective of the student, you know, is a Caribbean studies student, uh, mm. you know, I try to encourage the students to think of themselves as knowledge producers and to think about um, encouraging them to try to get their work published or to think about graduate school too. So I think that's the other part that I'm trying to figure out um, as I move forward is getting these students not just think of themselves as a um, – as you know, that, that you know, they're the students and I'm the the, the instructor, but they give themselves that they are actually part of um, building building this this base of knowledge. 
Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, this is so important when we're producing knowledge for social change uh, and for movements. Um, and we also have to remember that we are producers of knowledge and should speak, teach, and write about these issues. And um, that kind of work is so much more rich um, than solely um, those that sort of work um, and write about that from a distance, you know? So I think it is really important to have uh, practitioners and theorists and analysts that are doing all of the work um, at once um, produce knowledge. So actually, I want to move to my uh, sort of last question, which is about the notion of harvesting freedom. Um, I've seen it used in specific uh, spaces, especially educationals around migrant justice, um, and and um, especially Justicia has used this before. Um, and since this podcast is about liberation, I thought I would ask you about what harvesting freedom means to you um, and the work uh, that Justicia is doing uh, using this notion. Well, I want to go back actually. So, uh, you know, a lot of that work for the Harvesting Freedom campaign was uh, through some, you know, many other Justicia comrades, and particularly Sazna. Um, and Harvesting Freedom came out of um, a, a group of multiple campaigns that we ran earlier. Uh, I believe it was 10 years ago. Uh, mm. We did a 12-hour march from Leamington to Windsor, and it was mm. called Homage to Freedom. And it was a homage to, um, I guess, the, the civil rights, but also the long marches that were happening in California that the United Farm Workers were organizing where they would march up to Sacramento. So, mm. you know, homage to a lot of that work. Mm. Uh, also homage to the Underground Railroad and the, the, the idea of coming to Canada um, and basically trying to challenge and conceptualize this idea of, of Canada as a state of freedom, where it basically has always been premised on the exploitation of both resources, land, and people. Mm. Uh, that's what the, the pilgrimage to freedom was really about, uh, the first one. The second one happened the following year, where we, um, with workers and community activists over three weekends, we had uh, basically under uh, we, we followed the, the Underground Railroad, um, mm. and it was to basically uh, conceptualize this idea of, of looking for freedom versus the unfreedom that migrant workers uh, were facing currently, and to try to see the different forms of resistance that people undertook historically and what mm. we could possibly try to use today. And mm. then finally, in 2016, for the uh, 50th anniversary of the uh, of, of of the program, we undertook Harvesting Freedom. And harvesting freedom, and I think for each one of us, and this is just my, myself, uh, it's about how do we actually think? How do we think about liberation? How do we reconceptualize the idea of migrant workers as equals to our society? How do we basically put pressure for us to understand that the state and how the state uses immigration laws to divide workers, whether mm -hmm. they're refugees, undocumented, guest workers, uh, Canadian citizens, et cetera, et cetera. So for us, it was about trying to um, so basically uh, expose the state for 50 years of injustice, expose the state for a uh, contemporary system of indentured labor, and to basically hold them to account for the deaths and injuries and the unfreedom that, that exists on fields across Canada. Wow. Um, I hope that as you continue to do this work, uh, that we're able to harvest collectively in all the work that we do, especially uh, for the lives of uh, migrant workers um, and other workers who deserve so, so much more um, than what is being offered at the moment. And I think the last thing, you know, for all the comrades who are listening to this, um, and, you know, we spoke earlier prior to recording about, uh, uh, you know, sustainability 
you know, and, and trying to survive during both pandemic and then post, you know, we, we are trying to create a vision for a post-pandemic world for ourselves. Mm. And it's like, how do we be healthy? How do we uh, be sustainable? And how do we basically don't burn out? I think for all of us, it's, it's an ongoing conversation. Um, I haven't been... Um, I haven't shied away and I haven't been um, hiding the fact that I've been sick, very sick uh, for, for many years, but also this last part last year. And mm-hmm. I think it's also as, you know, we're dealing with a crisis um, and, you know, I've, 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 you know, I am a crisis organizer uh, in every sense of the word, uh, mm-hmm. but also understanding the limitations of this type of role. So thinking about as we move forward for all of us, right, I guess that lesson as, as I guess a, a, an older head now is, <laughs> is, is, you know, for, for, you know, to, you know, when we look at the work that many of us have done in the past, uh, I guess it's to think about, you know, what we can learn, but also what needs not to happen. And this type of organizing of crisis response uh, isn't always uh, the best way to continue a struggle. So for us, maybe you think about how do we help each other? How do we really sustain communities and, and um, as we move forward? And I think I invite all of us to have this uh, ongoing conversation. Yes, um, I absolutely agree with you about this. And I think we need to... Uh, have more conversations about this, sustaining the work through radical care practices. You know, so many folks that I've been talking to, especially folks that have been doing this work for a long time, are all sort of asking for this, you know. Um, And so I absolutely agree with you that we do need to think about how to sustain uh, this work towards um, not only harvesting freedom, but harvesting justice. Chris, um, I want to thank you so, so much for your time, uh, this conversation, sharing your insights and uh, for the amazing and important work that you do. Um, I absolutely look forward to building with you. Thank you. And likewise. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Liberation Pedagogy Podcast. If you'd like to learn more and engage with us, please check us out at www.liberationpedagogyproject.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.